Good morning uh, to everyone here and to people who are listening on the podcast. It's good to have you guys here. Let's pray really quickly before we get, begin. God, we ask that you would open our eyes and help us to behold the wondrous things from your word. Give us understanding. Give us hearts that want to hear from you. And uh, give us just the peace of knowing your word is true, and we can hear and grow and be convicted by it. So we need your help for that. In your name we pray. Amen. So <clears throat> we humans, we have a love-hate relationship with authority. We're all glad for authority that works in our favor, but we despise authority that does not. We're kind of like toddlers in this, in that one minute we're screaming and trying to bite our way to get what we want. And the next, we want to cuddle in the security of the mom we love and her arms. So we want convenient, fair, safe authority. Unless, of course, it interferes with our plans, then we don't. So for example, let's say you get into a small car accident and someone else caused it, but they won't admit it. You want an authority, a police officer, to come and help you enforce the law, help, help manage the situation. But when you go just barely over the speed limit and that same police officer who's ready to enforce the law comes and gives you a ticket, you are pretty angry. So yes, sometimes we want someone else to be in charge, but let's be honest, most of the time we want to be in charge. And we want to be in charge of everything, our own life, our day, our futures, we want it all. And this is kind of the problem that's been plaguing everyone since Adam and Eve, right? They saw something they wanted that they were told they couldn't have. So who's in charge? That's the question. The dictionary definition of authority includes this, that uh, authority is the power to determine, the right to control or command. So who has the authority? Who's in charge? Sin leads us to want to know the answer because either A, we want to have someone over us to blame if something's going wrong, or B, we want to confirm our deepest desire in that it should be us. We need to be in charge. And so we have this internal struggle going on, and it's all rooted in this battle we have for self-rule. And if we have self-rule, then we can call all the shots. We get to make the rules. And if we make the rules, we get to bend them or break them or change them. So today we're going to look at Matthew 22. Open up there if you haven't already. But before I read, I want to give you some context to help you understand what we're getting into. Have you ever walked into a room and there's tension? You're right in the middle of a heated argument, either between two, two, two children or two coworkers or family members at a holiday meal. Voices are raised and the air is tense, but because you were kind of zoning out, you walk in and you're like, whoa, something's going on here. And the only way to know really what's going on is context. So here we are in Matthew 22. We're kind of stepping into the middle of a fight that started in chapter 21. So we're going to read 21:23, and that'll help give us context to what's happening. So 21:23. And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? 
So that's the question. The chief priest and the elders are wondering, who do you think you are doing these things? And what are these things that Jesus has been doing that they mentioned? Well, he's been healing. He's been raising the dead. He's been forgiving sins. He's been teaching crazy things. He's been casting out demons. And most recently, just right before this, he cleared the temple of all the sin that was going on there. And he's doing these things boldly, like he's in charge. You see, in those days, there was a struggle for authority that was uniquely different than what we experience. At the time when Jesus walked on the earth, the Jews were living under political oppression of someone else, the Roman Empire. The Roman, the Rome, the Roman Empire came in and took their land and demanded they pay taxes, they follow their laws. So they were living under this unjust ruler. They were oppressed physically. And then there's this religious oppression that's happening. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they're bringing this oppression by their, they're telling people, you can only get to God if you do all these things. And there were things that were almost impossible to do, or actually basically impossible to do. So they're leading people astray, saying that you had to follow these man-made rules. And so they abused their authority, and it produced this religion that was based on guilt and fear. So Jesus shows up on the scene in the middle of this political and spiritual turmoil, and he declares that actually all authority has been given to me, is what he says. He does this from the first chapter of Matthew until the last. So with every storm he calms, with every disease he heals, with every truth he teaches, every outcast he says, come near to me. He's saying, I'm in charge. So in 21, 23, what we just read, the religious leaders are questioning him. And Jesus' answer, he says, I'm not telling you by what authority I do this. But then he goes on to tell three parables. And as usual, the parables are meant to cut straight to the heart of these faithless religious leaders. A few weeks ago, Noreen walked us through the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. And they, it, they taught... Um, on the kingdom, what the kingdom of God, who it was not for. Um, it was not for those who are religious on the outside, yet faithless in the, in the inside. And it's not for um, those who refuse to worship and, ha- and bear no fruit. So now we're going to read the third parable, which is the beginning of 22. So we're going to read 22, 1 through 14. So read along with me. <clears throat> and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who invited, those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man there who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So Jesus, in response to this questioning, ends with this parable, and he's comparing the kingdom of heaven to a king. And this king throws this lavish feast, would have been a multiple-day affair for his son, and he wanted to fill up his banquet hall with guests, and he wants to celebrate his son. And so invitations go out, but to no avail, no one comes. Again, the servants go out, inviting them to join the feast of the king. Come, they plead. But they refuse. They have excuses. Some say, or some are paying little attention to the servants, and some violently treat the servants or kill them. So these who were once invited then become destroyed themselves by the king. So lesson one from this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who invites people to come, and they do not, and they're destroyed. So the first to receive the invitation were not worthy, it explains. The king's invitation goes out to others, and they fill up the halls. The banquet is full. The celebration can begin until the king notices a man who's there who is not dressed properly. He doesn't seem to quite fit in. He's missing the right clothes. So the king kindly asks him to go to explain. He says, friend. But when the man cannot explain anything, he's speechless. It's revealed that he actually does not belong. So he's thrown out into the torturous darkness. So the lesson number two from the parable is the kingdom of heaven is like a king who calls many, but only few actually are chosen to stay. So why would Jesus tell this story, and what does it have to do with his authority? As you can guess, it's a direct blow to the Pharisees. They represent the faithless in Israel, who are called, but who are not worthy. They did not want God's rule, and there were thousands of years of rebellion in their history to prove it. The Old Testament is a story of God's people, Israel. He called them, he loved them, he made a covenant with them that he would be their God. They would be his chosen people, and they would bless everyone else through them. But they treated God like an adulterous wife treats her husband. The Old Testament uses the common, commonly uses the word they were, they were whoring, they were a whore. It's pretty stark. They were called again and again by the prophets with the very words of God saying, Come, come. But most did not come and sit and feast and fellowship with God, though a faithful remnant always remained. But now in the presence of Jesus, these religious leaders, they can't see that God is once again inviting them to come and see that Jesus is who he says he is. He is actually God with them come to usher in his kingdom. So Jesus is saying others will be invited into this celebration. All are welcome, not just the Jews. And if you were here on Sunday, uh, John Mahaffey spoke about how um, the kingdom became open to the Gentiles. And so God, Jesus is starting to mention that the kingdom will be for all who believe, Jew and Gentile. And that was really hard news for them to understand. It was paradigm shifting. And so the kingdom will be 
for not just those who are originally called, it'll be for everyone. And this is really good news for all of us non-Jews in the room, that we, are, we have the ability to be a part of his kingdom. So like the parable, there will be a party, and it will be almost perfect, except that some who think they're welcome will not actually be welcome. And this matches what Jesus has taught other places in the Gospels. He says people will think that they are believers, but when they come before God, he'll say to them, I don't know you. So many are called, but few are chosen. Many will come who do not actually have a saved heart. And will they, like this poorly dressed guest, be unable to defend themselves when confronted with the truth of the actual state of their heart? This is a warning not just to the people of Jesus' day, but to us. Are we dressed properly in the clothes of true faith? Because you and I are one day going to stand before God, and we're going to be awaiting to get into this eternal feast, and we'll be judged on whose garments we're wearing. Are we wearing ours or Christ's? And it's the point that we need to grasp is the same today as it was for them, and that's who's in charge actually really matters. I know I keep saying that because it's the point of my lesson. I hope you get that. (laughs) So are we trying to be in charge of our eternal salvation by putting on fake clothes of our own righteousness? Or have we submitted ourselves to the only person who can clothe us in righteousness? And that's what we need. We need to trust only in his righteousness, Christ, not ours. God is good, and he calls us friend, and he says, come. He wants us to be a part of his eternal celebration. So back to our chapter. This showdown over authority ends with a series of questions. Three questions from the religious leaders and one question from Jesus. So these religious leaders, they lob these three doozies of questions, and their intent is not to ask information because they're really interested. It's They're trying to uncover the charade that they're sure Jesus is. So we see from verse 15, it says, they come with malicious intent and they question him. But Jesus, as we know, knows exactly how to answer them. So we're going to look quickly at these questions. And for each question, we're going to look at the answer and the lesson learned from it. So let's look at question number one. I'm going to read 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So like a spider trying to trap its prey, the religious leaders are weaving this web of words. They come with their cronies, the Herodians, who are actually, Herodians means like followers of Herod, who are very pro-Rome. And they flatter him. Teacher, they say, we know that you are true. You teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about others' opinions. Which ironically, their words are actually true, but their hearts are betraying them. They're, They're just flatterers. They don't really care or believe those things about Jesus. 
So they pose a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And this question might seem random to us, but it was actually a highly debated question of the day. So remember, they are Jews living in their home that was given to them by God, but the land is being controlled by someone else. So does their allegiance lie with, uh, lie with God or with the people who's controlling the land? That's what they're questioning. And most religious Jews of the day thought it was wrong to submit to Rome and it was wrong to pay taxes to them. So the people are waiting for this Messiah to come and bring them freedom from Roman taxation and occupation. They want a physical, tangible uprising against Rome. And so the leaders are trying to trap Jesus, asking him to side with the Jews or with Rome. One commentary explains it this way. The trap then put Jesus into the position where he would either alienate a major part of the population, those who didn't think it was biblical to submit to Rome, or else lay himself open to the charge of treason against Rome. But Jesus gives the answer, give to God what is his and Caesar what is his. Jesus is stating what really matters, and it's this. Not that the Jews are free from oppression, but that they are to do the right thing even while they wait for salvation. So just in the chapter previously, Jesus rode on and entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. He came as a king, not for war, but for peace. His plan as Messiah was not to conquer physical oppression, but to bring oppression or bring relief from spiritual bondage. And Jesus answers in a way that is beyond what expected. He points them to this better way. Give to the leaders of the land what they need and give to God what he deserves. So the lesson learned from this is be faithful as you wait for a different kind of kingdom. The Pharisees and Herodians fell short in this category. Their hearts were far from faithful. They want to know who's in charge. And instead of discrediting Jesus like they wanted to do, Jesus actually takes the chance to reveal a little more of what his kingdom's going to be like. And he effectively pokes holes in their supposed authority, too. It's a good question for us. Are we following Jesus in this call to be faithful as we wait for a different kind of kingdom? Or are we fighting tooth and nail for something else that Jesus does not call us to be fighting for? So Christ's authority matters to us, and we need to ask, will we heed his words in our own lives? Let's look at question number two in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So next on the scene are these Sadducees. They were traditionally enemies of the Pharisees, but they teamed up. 
They believe life ended at death. Both body and soul did not go on. So it's surprising that their question involves heaven. This nonsensical question they pose about marriage in heaven is not really about some unlucky brothers who all die and some poor wife who has them all. It's not even actually about heaven. It's about, though Jesus does address the issue of heaven, what they're trying to do is they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to make something he taught on, heaven, seem absurd. And it's their lack of true understanding about the Bible and God himself that's revealed. And how does Jesus answer this? He says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So here are the lessons learned from his answer. Understanding the scriptures matter. Understanding the power of God matters. The Sadducees knew neither of these things. In fact, they're actually denying scripture in both these cases. So Jesus' answer magnifies the authority of the scripture and the power of God who said he will be with his people. And actually, this is a major theme of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about God wanting to be with his people. And they missed this as they studied the scriptures. These people, they knew the Old Testament, especially the first, the first five books. They knew really well. And they missed that God's plan was for his people to live with him eternally. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are all mentioned, they're all patriarchs of the faith that had lived thousands of years previously. And if their whole journey in life was to follow God and then die only to rot on earth in graves, what would the point of all the scriptures be? How can God be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob unless they are in his presence in heaven today? God is still their God. They live. So God spoke this through his word, in the past, and that matters, is what Jesus is trying to teach. And he has the power to bring his children into heaven, into his presence. And that's, that matters too. And the people are astonished, it says, in Matthew, though he doesn't really say why. And my guess is that the leaders are supposed to be the one who understand the Holy Scriptures and the power of God. And this carpenter from Nazareth is the one who's showing that these men actually don't know either. And they're frauds. And if they're frauds, maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Let's look at question number three in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the, greatest, what is the great commandment in the law? Sorry, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here we see the Pharisees um, coming again and with this question. And it, it seems like a tame question. Um, and, but they send their best to test Jesus, it says. And they test him by asking the greatest commandment. It seems benign, but one commentary explained it this way, and it was helpful for me. This scene is like an ordination council where the candidate is doing so well that some of the most learned ministers ask him questions that they themselves have been unable to answer in the hope of trapping him, or sorry, tripping him up, or of finding answers. So they're trying to trap him, and Jesus answers by combining two Old Testament texts 
Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus 19. So, love the Lord your God with all of who you are, which he actually changes it from, in Deuteronomy it says, love with all your might, and here he says, love with all your mind, um, interestingly, um, to show the, the completion of all of who you are. And the second thing is, love your neighbor as yourself. So he answers not with not one, but two commandments, a little more than they ask for. And as I was trying to understand this passage, I leaned a little more heavily on commentaries than I usually do because I couldn't figure it out. And I found this explanation really helpful, so I'm going to read it. James Edwards writes, Although the love of God and the love of humanity were occasionally affirmed separately in Israel, there is no evidence that before Jesus they were ever combined. It does not appear that any rabbi before Jesus regarded the love of God and the love of neighbor as a center and sum of the law. So the lesson learned is this. True religion cannot have love of God without love of others, and vice versa. This is why Jesus then makes the extraordinary statement, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the word depend in Greek actually means suspended from, like the vertical supports in a suspension bridge that keep the bridge from falling. So everything in scripture and all the prophets taught, all that they taught were all derived from these dual commands, love God, love your neighbor. Now, we all know what it's like to be around people who are pious towards God, but heartless towards others. They attend church, they read their Bible, but they refuse to forgive or care for others or seek out those in need. If you only love God and not others, it's a self-serving, reclusive religion. And we all know examples from this very, this is very real in our culture today, of the emptiness of humanitarian outreach void of God. If you only love others but not God, it's just altruism that makes you feel good. And it helps others temporarily, but it doesn't really give them or you any lasting hope. So it cannot be either or, it has to be both. And the one in charge, Jesus said this, we have to listen to it. Is our faith built on the command that matters most to love our God with all of who we are? Does our love for God outpour into love for others? It may be easy to say that, we, that it does, but we need to examine our hearts daily for this. Is there tangible fruit of both of those things in our lives? Are our hearts growing in love for God? Are we doing the hard work of loving each other well? I want to be clear. It's not our love for God or our love for other that, others that save us. That's not what I'm saying. But if we are truly saved by God's grace, both of those things should be taking root and flourishing within us. We are not sure of what the religious leaders think after this. It actually doesn't say their responses. Instead, Jesus says, I'm going to ask some questions. So he does. So let's read question number four, uh, verse 41. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus asked them what I think is the most important question of this whole confrontation. And it's also the most important question we have to answer. 
what is, the, their, what is their opinion on who the Christ is? This is a Messiah that they're all looking for, and they don't believe it's Jesus. So what's their opinion? And they say, he's the son of David. And then Jesus asks another question. It's a rhetorical question, and the question is left hanging in the air for the religious leaders to chew on. We don't know their answer. And he, he quotes Psalm 110. So there's a quote mm-hmm. right in there. Um, and says, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the Jews write, or I want to say first, this is like a, one of the most popular um, psalms that they would study then about the Messiah. And it's also the most quoted passage in all of the New Testament um, from the Old Testament, is Psalm 110. It would be very familiar to all of them who are listening. And they rightly believe that the Messiah would be someone from the line of David. And the Old Testament is filled with prophecies that say this coming king would be a literal son or descendant of David. But Jesus is pointing out the nuance here of what David's saying. It's a little confusing, so hopefully you can follow me. David's calling this son of his, my Lord. He says, what's confusing is in here it doesn't capitalize the first Lord. So the first Lord in the Old Testament would be all caps, which means Yahweh. So basically God. God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So um, David's saying, or so David's in essence saying, God is saying, there's someone else over me. So the mystery of this psalm is that the Messiah is supposed to be a son of David, but somehow he's supposed to be a head over David, over him. How can this be? Well, it doesn't make sense. The psalm does not make sense unless, until Jesus comes. And if you read, let's read Matthew 1, 1. I want to read that together and help you see how it starts to make sense. So it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to list every person in his line, every man in his line, and it shows that he actually is a descendant of David. And then if you look down a little bit in verse 20 to 23, I'll read it. It says, But as he, um, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is factually and unequivocally the son of God. We saw that in the genealogy. He's David's, but he's also David's Lord. So God speaks here. We saw that he was his, um, sorry, in the genealogy it shows that he's the son of David, and now we see that he's the son of God. So it's later on in 317, the voice of God actually speaks and says, this is my son whom I love and I'm pleased with. So who's in charge here, they're asking. Not just the son of David, but the Lord of David is going to be in charge. So that person, that mystery person, is here. And they're confused, but Jesus is saying, he is here. 
Jesus, the Messiah, the one who saves, is here, and he's the one who's going to be crushing enemies beneath him. So understandably and a little comically, they don't ask any more questions because their questions of authority cannot be answered any more clearly that the one who came to save is here. As I was working on this study a few days ago in the morning, and some of my kids were sitting with me while I was working on it, they were eating breakfast, they asked me what I was teaching about, so I explained the chapter just a little bit. And my nine-year-old Mercy said, imagine how upset the Pharisees must be. For thousands of years, they were the ones who knew everything. And now Jesus comes saying he's in charge. Of course they were mad. So it took my nine-year-old 30 seconds to sum up the passage well, which took me like days to understand. But she's right. The leaders must disprove Jesus. They must, because this man cannot be the long-awaited son of David. If he was, then everything they were teaching was wrong, basically. And they didn't want people to know that they were bogus, and they themselves, they had spent their whole lives following these rules that they had made. So if they can show that he has no grounds for saying who he is or what, what he's doing, then they can still be saved by their own works, and they can be in charge. And in the next chapter, you'll see even more. Jesus declares, beware. He's telling the people, warning them, beware of these men. And it's, it's to us to beware of our own hearts. Are we these people? So what does all the authority of Jesus that we're talking about have to do with us? Well, if Jesus is not who he says he is, then all of the Bible, um, sorry, all of this Bible study and this church and this prayer that we're doing, it's all worthless. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then there's no reason to get up every day and be faithful at home, be a diligent worker at work, or reach out to hurting people, hurting neighbors. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then we don't have to do the hard work of forgiving each other and loving each other, and confessing sin. But he is in charge. And he whose words spoke into existence light, think about that. He speaks to us today in his word. So he has authority over wind, and flowers, and the heartbeat of a baby in his or her mother's womb. And he has authority over our last breath that we'll take. And so it's really essential that we grasp that Jesus, who is in authority, is actually a really good ruler. He's kind and he's just. He has mercy. And so we see the one that is in control, he's good, and we should follow him. And actually, he's saying all these things to these Pharisees as he's looking towards the cross, just days away from giving himself up for all of us who are struggling with self-rule. So from, this, from the beginning of Matthew, we saw that there is this son of David. God says, Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. To the end of Matthew, which is really beautiful, where Jesus says, Go, all authority in heaven and on earth has, has been given to me. I, I give it to you, and I will be with you. So from the beginning to the end, there's authority and there's also presence. He's going to be with us. and He's not going to leave us. So he's in charge. And so I encourage us all to be women who live obediently, who worship him, and who love God and love others well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that 
exposes our hearts and teaches us the things we need to hear. And I think of the truth that you are good and you're in charge. And I think of how you've called us to be faithful on this earth as we await for a better kingdom. And that's something my heart needs uh, today. And it's something that I know other women need to hear that we can be faithful and you've called us to be faithful and you're with us. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.